Hello, and welcome to the Steps Podcast with me, Boone Christensen, Licensed Marriage and Family Therapist. And this episode is a continuation of our three-part series. That first part was about coping mechanisms and the role that they play in treatment. This episode is about treating the system. And what does it really mean to treat the system? This means that we are doing things to change our environment. And we mostly do that by drawing lines and building walls in our environment, uh, much like we would, you know, like an animal enclosure. So we, what we are thinking about in treating the system is, am I in a place to heal? Is my environment a place where I can grow? We are setting boundaries to include assets, include things in our life and our environment that will help us heal and grow and excluding as many liabilities as possible, things that are hurting us rather than helping us or straining us in a helpful way. Changing our environment also involves learning and implementing skills to change interaction cycles. Um, for us, this might primarily mean communication skills with our family or our coworkers or our friends, like, such as, I'm going to be more honest with my boss, or I'm going to you know, tell my spouse how I feel more often in terms of emotions rather than accusations. Learning these skills can reduce our systemic stress. Remember, as we're talking about changing the system, that this isn't a linear process, and it's not a, it's not a singular process, meaning that we don't just work on the system. We work on coping skills and processing traumatic stress while working on the system and we might need to jump around a bit we might need to learn a coping skill before we can set an effective boundary or before we can process a trauma effectively or we might need to process a trauma before we can set a specific boundary for example you might be wanting to seek a new job to change up your systemic stress but you have such a fear of failure that you're unable to change jobs that might involve some trauma processing beforehand. Or you know that you need to drop all your classes this semester if you want to get into a good place for your mental health, but you know, you're so anxious about doing that that you can't do it. So you might need to reduce some traumatic stress or develop some coping skills before you get to a place where you can set that effective boundary. Um, or you might need to get out of a toxic relationship to reduce your systemic stress. And we'll include a post in today's reading that talks about that specifically. So the three posts that we'll be reviewing are Boundaries and Manipulation, Part 3, Setting Emotional Boundaries or Detaching Relationships, and Feelings First, Part 2. All right, let's get started. Boundaries and Manipulation, Part 3. Is this actually a boundary? It's super popular these days to set boundaries, especially for those who identify as recovering people pleasers and workaholics. It's also a very good idea. Boundaries exist to protect your well-being and meet your needs, but people sometimes have misconception of what it actually means to set a boundary. I'll start with what boundaries are not. You need to do more housework. This is telling someone what to do. I will not tolerate this behavior. This is expressing what is unacceptable to you. I'm going to ground you for a month. This is an empty threat. I promise I'll be home before six. This is a promise. I never kiss on the first date. This is a personal creed. But all of the above were not boundaries. 
A boundary is always something that you do. It is not something you expect someone else to do or that you want to do but don't. I like to frame boundaries as if-then statements. If this happens, then I will do this. It is a response to a certain event or behavior or a condition that exists in the case of an event. These have to be realistic responses to not just be considered threats or bluffs. Each of these previous statements can be reframed as effective boundaries. 1. I'm feeling overwhelmed with the house. If the load gets too much for me, I'll have to dip into our vacation fund to hire some help. Note, nothing here is insulting or implies laziness or lack of concern. This is my feeling overwhelmed about the house, not your character flaw. 2. If this behavior continues, I will withhold video games, allowance, car keys, etc. There's no shaming here, just a direct statement of what is going to happen. 3. Because this happened, I will be enforcing our previously discussed consequence. Not some sort of rule that is thought up on the spot and something you can actually handle enforcing. Next. If my boss asks me to stay late, I will say no. This boundary with yourself may invite a boundary from someone else to increase your accountability. Okay, and if you have a hard time doing so, I'll just call your boss, okay? Last. If he tries to pull moves on the first date, I will tell him directly how I feel about it and end the date early if he continues. These are some principles of what effective boundaries are. 1. The response should never be an attack on someone, except in cases of physical self-defense. This means no yelling, insulting, isolating, guilting, blaming, accusing, or criticizing. These consequences produce anxiety in others, especially children, and are not boundaries. They're just attacks. They invite further attacks, I should say. With adults, the first boundary should usually be expressing feelings in non-accusatory ways. Quote, If you do this, I'm going to tell you how I feel about it. This is not to try and induce guilt, but to inform someone of the effects of their actions and let them decide whether it is the right decision. For example, If you stay out late again, I'm going to feel sad and lonely. This isn't manipulation, it's just honesty. The partner decides whether it is worth their partner's sadness to go out. No criticisms of neglect here. It may be the partner decides to stay out late despite the other's sadness, saying, If I don't feel free to socialize, I'm going to feel controlled and resentful. And this is okay. Both of these partners are having feelings here that need to be validated, and resolutions or compromises can come from that, but they can't come from an exchange of criticisms or attacks. Um, I have a footnote that I'll address later here. Next, the boundary needs to be consistent. If you're too tired, overwhelmed, or anxious to enforce the boundary consistently, you will likely get few benefits from it. For example, I only say no to my boss sometimes, so he keeps asking me to stay late. Next, if the boundary isn't working, it may mean it isn't addressing the real problem here. It isn't important to the person getting the boundary, or it may be causing the problem. These are three examples of this principle. Number one, I trained my toddler to not pee his pants by giving him the natural consequence of a cold, cleansing shower spray whenever he did. And it worked. However, there were still a few pee-pee accidents, but only around highly stressful events. The boundary didn't produce any change in those circumstances, so I learned to address the underlying issue by helping my son process his stress rather than spraying him with cold water when he peed himself because he was stressed. 
Two, your teenager is late to school every day and often skips class. The school calls to tell you every time this happens, but his grades remain reasonably high and there don't seem to be any consequences. If the call home doesn't affect him, then this isn't a boundary he cares about. It's not a character flaw, it's just a lack of relevant rewards and consequences. If there is a stronger consequence for truancy, such as suspension or a grade reduction, and your teen is still not going, school may be irrelevant, relevant to some other need. He might be getting bullied, have depression, or he might secretly be making millions on cryptocurrency and so doesn't care about school. 3. This guy keeps calling to ask you out, and you always respond kindly by telling him that you are not interested, but he keeps calling. You may find that your kind response is what he's actually after, a desperate way to get any sort of attention from you. The more effective boundary might be to kindly tell him that you won't be responding anymore. Attention as a reward can be tricky. Think about what consequences for your kids are actually giving them the attention that they're seeking. How can you set more relevant boundaries and give healthier forms of attention? So, next principle. That last one took a little bit longer to, to explain. The perceived gravity of the boundary may be the reason it isn't working. The highest stakes boundaries involve love as currency. It will either be given or retracted as a consequence. If the consequence for doing or not doing something is yelling, scolding, or hitting, which are inherently shaming behaviors, then the person risks losing love. If the consequence is something closely associated with the expression of love, this same kind of feeling may arise, such as using family outings, quality time together, attention or physical affection, or even praise as a consequence or reward, creates the feeling of conditional love. When love is on the line, the person receiving the boundary may either shut down and not comply because there's no use playing for such high stakes, or they may be defiant to test whether or not your love is actually conditional. The next principle, boundaries can't really be violated because they are your actions, but they can be overpowered by other boundaries. For example, if you yell at me again, I'm going to break up with you. Well, if you break up with me, I'm going to kill myself. This isn't a violation of your boundaries. It's a power struggle. You overcome power struggles by addressing the underlying need for control. What unresolved traumas are making this person so insecure that they threaten suicide over a breakup? And if you can't therapeutically interact with that person to you know, keep them from making those kind of threats, you just have to be stronger. If you threaten suicide, I'm going to call the police. This latter option is not ideal and sometimes not possible, but it is sometimes necessary. All manipulations are strong-arm boundaries, with the leverage usually being something personally hurtful. It's not manipulation if the response is to protect yourself. So, footnote on that last, on the other thing I said. If you find accommodating a person's feelings seems unreasonable, setting a boundary may be necessary for them to address the source of their feelings. Think about how setting a boundary with someone may actually be helpful to them as well as helpful to you. So, look at the boundaries you try to set for yourself at work, school, with kids, or in relationships. How many of these actually have a response action, a if-then statement? How many have a response action that you can consistently uphold? How many have a response that is not shaming for others or yourself? Where are your boundaries failing and why? All right. 
The next post we're going to read is about setting emotional boundaries or detaching from relationships. It pains me that I would never need to that I would ever need to instruct people on how to reduce the intimacy and vulnerability of a relationship to get to an internal state where a person's words, both positive and negative, have little or no effect. Relational detachment is a therapist's worst nightmare, but there are some scenarios where it may be appropriate, such as when you frequently come into unavoidable contact with a verbally abusive family member, such as a parent, when you do not consider divorce a legitimate option, but your spouse is not in a place to stop hurting you emotionally, uh, but I do recommend removing yourself from physically abusive relationships, when you are co-parenting with someone with no desire to cooperate or be respectful, or other situations where confrontation and resolution with a source of trauma are unlikely or impossible, such as at a job or in a school program. I am always in favor of confrontation and repair and believe all people are capable of it with enough work and patience, but I respect when people determine that setting an emotional boundary will serve them best. I hope it is only done after lengthy deliberation and courageous attempts at repair. So how do we begin detaching? You can probably think of a few people who are already numb in certain relationships. It's something our brains and bodies will do naturally over time. But there is a way to do this that can increase insight and lead to real healing rather than just numbing and slapping on band-aids. It involves the processing and evolution of several emotions, usually starting with anger and ending with compassion. And here I will describe that sequence. First, anger. You have been hurt. You have felt ignored, abandoned, disrespected, insulted, criticized, or abused. Your body is feeling threatened and wants to defend itself. Recognize and allow yourself to feel this anger. Let it out in a way that doesn't hurt anyone, maybe by venting to a friend, exercising, burning strongly worded letters, etc. Next, pain or shame. What pain is evoking the, the fight response? What hurts here? What does it mean about you that you could be hurt in this way? Talk about the pain you feel from this person. This will help you transition from anger, which is kind of the surface level emotion, to sadness, the inner emotion. Next is grief. What have you lost in this relationship? What expectations or needs went unmet? What did you never have? Begin processing what you are letting go as you come to accept that this relationship cannot be expected to improve and so must be approached differently. What does it mean that you can no longer expect this person to fulfill the role you hoped they would as a partner or parent, sibling, mentor, or friend? Next is generally pity. What must this person's state be if they are continuously hurting you and unable to put effort into repairing? What kinds of unresolved trauma or other mental state are they in to perpetuate this abuse? This is where you might visualize this person as an injured animal. It's a lot easier to feel compassion for a traumatized animal than it is for a traumatized person. This kind of boundary requires that secure relationships exist elsewhere. The relationship you are detaching must not be essential to your self-worth if this, if this is going to work. Next, it is possible to love someone and have boundaries with them. This process is not to create apathy, but to protect you and help you, help you accept things as they really are. And last, the attachment can be recovered, but will take as much work or more work than detaching did. Feelings First, Part 2, Breaking Useless Cycles. 
So this post is going to discuss a skill, a concept that we can implement on our relationships that can reduce systemic stress in relationship dynamics. Okay, um, It is very closely related to the STEPS model. The STEPS model pretty much explains the science behind this concept of feelings first. How often do you get into useless argument cycles with your child or partner? Does it seem like, no matter what anyone says, feelings and opinions don't change, but the conversation continues and everyone comes away feeling hurt and angry? I promise there is a way out of this. Remember that if an argument breaks out or someone shuts down, we have missed validating an emotion. We have skipped a step. For any kind of conversation or negotiation to be effective, both parties have to feel safe and cared for. If one feels defensive, whatever the other says will likely have a neutral or negative effect. Maybe one of these examples will look familiar to you. Your teenage daughter. Can I borrow the keys to go to the concert with my friends this weekend? Parent. No, that concert will have tons of people passing drugs around and you'd be home after curfew. That's not true. Jamie's brother went last year and said it was totally safe and he got home before 12. <sighs> I don't trust Jamie's brother as far as I can throw him. Ah, you never let me do anything and you're always judging my friends. That's not true. I let you go out every weekend last month and even on some school nights. And I don't think your friends are bad. I just think they're a bad influence sometimes. Why can't you hang out more with Samantha down the street? Ugh. You let me go out one school night for like an hour. And my friends are a lot better than yours were when you were my age. Ugh. You always exaggerate and you don't know anything about my friends. There's so many things you don't understand. Pause. We're going to stop here because this conversation is just going to drum up more anger and personal attacks. What happened to the conversation about the concert? Why are we comparing teenage experiences of parent and child? Let's identify where the first emotions happened. Teenage daughter. Can I borrow the car, car keys to go to the concert with my friends this weekend? She's having emotions. She's feeling excitement, anticipation, maybe some fear of rejection. We're going to pause here. Before we address the content of this request, you know, asking for the car keys, we need to address the emotion. The priority in all interactions with our loved ones is to help them feel loved, even if we can't concede to all requests. You know there's little chance you're going to let this happen, but you can still try to seek understanding. You might respond, Huh, that sounds fun, which is validation, but I have con some concerns. Could you tell me more? Seeking understanding. Well, this is my favorite band, and my friends have been talking about it for months. <sighs> And there's this guy I really like who's going to be there. Wow, I see this is a really big deal for you. I've heard you guys talking about it, and I know how you feel about this guy. Yeah, I think I understand. But I wouldn't feel comfortable about letting you go. What? Why not? That's so unfair. Maybe she might proceed to give logic of why she should, she should be able to go. But you don't respond logically. You're responding to the emotion. I know, and I believe you could be safe and be back on time which shows good faith in the child, but I'm just feeling too anxious about it. I recognize how much I'm hurting you with this decision, and I'm sorry. You're not sorry, or you'd let me go. She storms out. So, the child still got angry, but this is still an example of effective parental communication. The parent showed validation, saw understanding, and set a boundary without any shame, blame, or logical rebuttals when emotions were running high. This parent led with the primary reason for the boundary, which is the parent's own anxiety. And this cannot be argued with. 
Logical reasons can be debated, and if you attempt to use logic to explain a boundary, you give the child license to continue the debate. That would be fine if this were negotiable, but since it is not, you should not make it sound like you were debating. And it is okay if feelings get hurt. That can't be helped sometimes when setting boundaries. But it is not okay to use shame, guilt-tripping, judgmental comments, or to use logic against emotions. Those things make this conversation a traumatic experience. But setting boundaries without shame or attempting to argue or logic make it just a boundary that is much easier to recover from. So, one more example. Husband asks, can we do it tonight? Wife, seriously? We had sex yesterday. Yeah, but that was after a month of drought. (sighs) That's because I've been stressed with the work budget cuts and getting migraines almost every night. Yeah, and somehow your stress is more important than my stress of getting neglected. That's not true. I do so much to reduce your stress. Like what? Like taking care of the yard while you sleep in on weekends, making dinner and doing bedtime every night so you can wind down, taking on this job because you can't make enough? Pause. This has become an emotional conversation disguised as a debate as to who does more for the family. It can officially go nowhere and people can only get hurt. There are some topics that can potentially be negotiated logically, but sex is not one of them. Whether or not you choose to have sex depends primarily on how you feel and cannot effectively be argued with frequency statistics, quid pro quos, or contract details. If you need to convince someone logically to have or not have sex with you, you have completely missed the mark. So, where are the feelings? When the husband asks, can we do it tonight? This is a half-hearted bid for intimacy laced with fear of rejection, desire for closeness, and perhaps a desire to cope with his other stressors. When the wife says, seriously? We had sex yesterday. This is a cheap attempt to cover up feelings by conveying that the husband is being stupid. The, The term, seriously, is a way of saying, you're stupid. And using a flawed quantitative logic. by saying whether we have sex today depends on the number of times we did recently and that doesn't make any sense the real feeling is more like anxiety over other stressors feeling used feeling objectified and feeling unsafe and likely feeling annoyed at the half-hearted attempt because this husband was guarded in his bid for a highly vulnerable interaction he is more likely to be met with guardedness which is going to feel invalidating for him We increase our chances of a validating interaction by cutting to the heart of the issue, sharing our most personal feelings. Ideally, this situation would go like this. I really enjoyed sex last night. I felt really connected and loved. And I've had a pretty rough day and would really like to feel that again. How would you feel about that? Wife. Oh, honey, I also enjoyed last night. I love feeling connected and I know how much it helps you after a hard day. And I recognize how hard this last month has been for you. I'm so sorry. I just don't think I have it in me tonight. I have so much on my mind and I don't think I could be present for you or enjoy it very much. I appreciate you asking though. (sighs) I feel sad that we won't be able to tonight, but I appreciate you letting me down easy. Is there something we could compromise on? I also want to connect tonight. Maybe I could give you a back rub, then you listen while I vent. Deal. So, this example played out extraordinarily well, even if nobody had sex. After lots of practice expressing and validating feelings directly, believe it or not, a couple could actually get to the point where they talk like this. Which, you know, might seem kind of cheesy and 
um, and abnormal right now, but, um, but it feels really good if you're actually able to do it. <clears throat> However, even if two people come away sad from an interaction, he's sad about not having sex, and she's sad that he's sad, they come away feeling greater intimacy, which makes the conversation a success. Even if only one person validates feelings and expresses, expresses emotions directly, while the other tries to fight, there can still be growth, because the fighter can only fight for so long without any aggressive response in return. So, to sum up this post. Point one, express your feelings as feelings, not reasons, and certainly not as attacks. Feelings promote validation and understanding. Reasons elicit counter-reasons. Point two, validate feelings before addressing the content. Feelings first. Let people know it's okay to feel what they're feeling. It has to be, because people don't actually have a choice in how their brain generates emotions. Point three, if someone gets angry or shuts down, stop and evaluate what is happening in the conversation. Find out where the hurt happened and try and repair before you do anything else. Point four, even if someone reacts negatively to your non-accusatory feelings and boundaries, don't attack them. People are allowed to feel angry and they are less likely to be angry the next time if you don't shame them now. Last point. If you're so triggered that you can't access the analytical part of your brain, you'll need to deal with your own baggage before expecting communication skills to be effective. Just the, the recognition that, obviously, it takes a lot of work to get, this, get to this point, both with behavioral practice and processing your own emotional baggage, which we are going to cover in more detail in the next episode. Thank you so much.